0: I don't know if you've noticed the settings around me. I'm sure you have. You may not have noticed the risers on either side <clears throat> in the front. But if you come tonight, you are going to see, when you watch Damon and Lewis do their Fred Astaire routine up and down those risers, it is just amazing. So you are going to want to come and see that tonight. Or, or not. I want to begin, uh, actually... Um, this morning, we've completed our studies in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to begin this morning with a case study about the subtlety of pride. Uh, last Sunday in Sunday School class, John Reniger asked that I share with the class uh, the testimony of our ten month journey to. Donate a kidney to a close friend in the Officers Christian Fellowship. And so I did. Uh, When Betsy and I began that transplant journey, um, we wanted it kept quiet because we felt like this was an offering as unto the Lord. And it was a 10 month journey. Uh, And it was as unto the Lord to my friend Joe. We didn't tell anyone. most probably wouldn't have worked out anyway so there's no reason to to tell anyone but then after the first encouraging tests we told lewis and then after about three months when i found out i was a match uh, we told our family and we told the elders and then on a sunday morning two days before the surgery lewis told you guys because we wanted we were home um quarantining (laughs) but We wanted you guys to pray, and we thought it'd be really weird if you didn't know about it at that point, but we still wanted this to be as unto the Lord. All good, all good, right? As unto the Lord. Uh, Three weeks ago, Betsy and I arrived at the Officers Christian Fellowship Retreat Center where I've taught for many years, and um, where we met Joe and Kathy for the first time, and Joe and Kathy had been up there the previous week, and... uh, that was the week where we, had our, we kind of had our 50th anniversary celebration with all of our children, all of our grandchildren together for that week. It was wonderful. Uh, but um, <clears throat> while we were there, no one said anything about the transplant. And I know it was as unto the Lord, but it was like no one knew because exactly my heart because I mean apparently they didn't know Uh, not that we really wanted them to know because it was as unto the Lord right Ah. now all week there were moments when Satan was whispering in my ear Gary I am so proud of your humility I do have a shirt from Joe and Kathy that says organ donor who wouldn't want a piece of this but I I didn't wear it because I was too humble do you see where I'm going with this something that began just between me and Betsy and the Lord as unto the Lord became a struggle with a sin of pride. And am I alone here? Do any of you have you know some of you? yeah, you're totally alone. <laughs> have any of you ever struggled with something that was ed, as unto the Lord, but that morphed into a spiritual struggle for you? Can I see your hands? Oh, good. Okay. And the rest of you can repent later. Just to clarify, when the Bible speaks of Sometimes the Bible speaks of an appropriate kind of pride. Uh, the messed up Corinthian church, for example, uh, made great strides from 1 Corinthians to what we read as 2 Corinthians. And Paul wrote, Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. 2 Corinthians 7.4. So we, we all get that. It, you know, I can say... I'm I'm proud of my children. I'm proud of my church. Meaning, I am happy, or as Paul would say, I'm comforted. I'm pleased that they are the people that they have become. It's not, look at me, I did that. It's not that. It's it's an, an appropriate godly satisfaction with something. But at its core, sinful pride does say, look at me, I did that. Sinful pride compares itself with other people and feels superior. Do you remember the catchphrase from Garrison Keillor's Lake Woebegone where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average? The worst thing about the sin of pride, it's the sin that keeps you from God. God doesn't divide people into good and bad. God doesn't even divide people into sinful and not sinful. In terms of salvation, God divides people into proud and humble. The very reason for God's grace in your life, that by which you are saved, has nothing to do with how worthy you think you are or how wonderful your appearance think you are. It has everything to do with God and who he is, and how wonderful he is, and how worthy he is. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, right? Not as a result of works. Why? Lest anyone should what? Boast. But after we're saved, there's still this struggle with sin. We battle with it, and pride is still enemy number one for the believer, Pride can destroy a home, it can destroy your marriage, it can destroy your parenting, it can destroy an organization, it can destroy a friendship, it can destroy a testimony, it can destroy a church, it can destroy kingdoms. So what I want to do, as the Apostle Peter said, I want to stir you up by way of a reminder. I want to remind all of us, because I need the reminder of this foundational truth of the ongoing challenge of putting God in his place and putting myself in my place. Now, I I do want to say, if you're a visitor here, I'm glad you're here. You may have picked up that ordinarily our sermons are expositions of books of the Bible. We just finished Mark. We're going to be starting James in a few weeks. So... What's going on here is I, I was reading ahead in the book of James, and uh, it hit me how the idea of pride is actually behind most of the relational sins that James describes. And then I was reading through the Old Test- my Old Testament reading, I saw it even more clearly displayed. So I thought I would take this morning as an opportunity, since I was scheduled and we're in between studies, to remind us all about this foundational truth. And, and by the way, yesterday, Betsy asked me, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm preaching on pride. And she pointed to my work notes, and she said, you proud of that? <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. So first, let's, let's describe what we mean by the sin of pride. It's one thing to say, I'm proud of my children, or I'm, I'm, I'm proud of so many things of what I see in my church, or I'm proud of my high school, it's quite another thing to say or to think, I'm proud of my children, and they're better than your children. Read my bumper sticker. Or, you know, I'm so proud that our church teaches the Bible for up to 45 minutes. We endure to the end. And the dead in Christ—never mind. Uh, so, the reason I bring that up is I, I was—I was raised in a church where there were so many things about it that I loved, and I loved the people. But we were taught that we had the deeper truths that no one else had, because those deeper truths were for mature Christians, and guess what that meant—we were. We were proud of being deep and strong and stable. Well, that church no longer exists. When the pastor retired, over time, everything fell apart. And that's part of why here at Signal Mountain Bible Church, we had a process of gradual, seamless transition from me to Lewis over a five-year span. And we're very proud of that. No, wait. (laughs) See, pride is slippery. Now, here's some one sentence descriptions or maybe definitions of pride. Pride is being captivated with yourself. Does that resonate? Here's another. Pride not only wants your own way, but says your way is better than any other way, including God's way. Here's another. Pride views yourself as greater than who you are and God is less than who he is. Pride desires and even fantasizes to be recognized and to be praised. Pride compares. There's a statement from C.S. Lewis that I think is on target. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. There are several sin lists in the Bible. And in, in, the new, in the Middle Ages, Christians condensed those lists to what they consider to be an irreducible minimum. They called them the seven deadly sins. And here they are in reverse order, gluttony, lust, greed, laziness, anger. Number two is envy. Guess what number one is? You tell me pride. And when you open scripture and see the results of pride, there's no question why it's sin number one, because pride destroys kingdoms, destroys marriages, destroys families, it destroys parenting, it destroys friendships, it destroys churches. You getting the idea here? And like I said before, this is an unusual kind of sermon, but what I want to do is actually give a brief overview uh, we're going to dip a little bit into some history books, going to dip into some prophets, going to dip into some wisdom sections of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we're going to look at a parable there. Um, it, this is kind of an overview of the sin of pride. It's an, more of an unusual sort of sermon for, for me, but, but I, I kept seeing this and it just kept hitting me um, and, and holding up the mirror of God's truth to my face. So, I want us to do this, have this overview of the sin of pride in the Bible. But even before, even before we began with Adam and Eve, Satan was a created being who chose sin over God. What particular sin motivated Satan? Ezekiel 28, verse 17, tells us it was the sin of pride. That's how it all started out. Your heart was lifted up. Because of your splendor, God accuses. Satan didn't want God to be God. Satan wanted Satan to be God. And his strategies have not changed. In Genesis chapter 3, what was Satan's appeal to our first parents? It wasn't to eat of the fruit. That's too easy. Here was his appeal. You will be like God. In Genesis, After Genesis 3... The first thing in Genesis 4, Cain's anger against Abel was because of pride, and he murdered his brother. And at the end of Genesis chapter 4, when over time, when you read through that chapter, agriculture developed, urbanization, cities developed, advances in technology and in the arts flourished, including the science of metallurgy. Those things had taken place. And then at the end of chapter 4, we see the first case of polygamy in the Bible with a man named Lamech. And he brags to his two wives, apparently holding and exulting over weapons that he has that are made of iron. Lamech boasted, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 77-fold. You got the picture there with this, this this instrument, this weapon, I can depend upon the products of my culture and not depend upon God. I don't know if you hear the echoes of that today. With this, this computer, this cell phone, this MRI machine, this stock exchange, this, whatever the products of the culture are, with this, I don't need to depend upon God. I'm self-sufficient. Well, culture progressed and civilization degenerated. You can see how pride was judged in the flood of Genesis 6 through 9. In Genesis 10 and 11, you can point to the architecture of the Tower of Babel, but its goal was to marginalize God and to confine him and put him in his place to subdue God and say, hey, we control worship, not God. And when we want to worship, we've got this tower here. But until then, God, don't call us. We'll call you. The rest of the world, it's ours. Here's the devastating self-indictment. We will make a name for ourselves. Pride. You can point to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. Sadly, our culture just celebrated Pride Month. In fact, from all things I can see, it's still celebrating it. God destroyed those cities for their violence, for their homosexual sins. But just so you know, Scripture also mentions one other sin with those cities, and that is the sin of pride. They knew better than God. God created them binary, male and female, he created them. But the people of Sodom said, no, we reject God's definition of who we are, or we will make a name for ourselves. Again, the echoes of pride. There are other examples in Genesis, but if I just skip ahead to the end of the book with the main character near the end, we see how Joseph's life began in pride over being his father's. And it showed up in the relationships. And Joseph had to learn humility the hard way through enslavement and oppression. And at the end, when Joseph is exalted, Joseph had every reason in the world, the literal world, to be proud. But instead, he became the wisest and best of the descendants of Abraham, who was characterized by humility. So the mirror of, I mean, this is just one book. This is Genesis. If you fast forward to the end of the books of Moses, the last book, Deuteronomy, God warns his people through Moses, do not settle down into the kind of routine that forgets who you are and who God is. If you do forget the Lord, you will fall. And if you are a king, your kingdom will fall. Listen to Deuteronomy eight fourteen. God's warning is this. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, you enter this routine where you become less and less dependent upon God and the focus of your life moves off of God and moves onto yourself and maintaining your personal status quo and your personal comfort level. Over the centuries, as you read through the book history books, First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you read the lives of kings and the span of kingdoms, 39 kings. The bad kings were characterized by pride. The good kings humbled themselves before God. And as went the king, so went the people and the kingdom. And by the way, That's in Israel. Even outside Israel, the same pattern took place. We won't go there, but the book of Daniel is a case study, a work analyzing pride and humility, contrasting the two, to the point where one pagan king repents, and he says this in Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true. And his ways just, listen to this, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. If you move from the history books to the wisdom books, there are many teachings about pride in what book would you expect? Proverbs, exactly. Everyone's familiar with pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the main point of so many of those Proverbs is is this important point, and that is that pride displaces God in your thought life. There are many verses there that we could look at, but I want us to consider a different wisdom book. I mentioned the book of Job a few weeks ago. I believe that Job lived shortly uh, before the time of Abraham. He was a a godly man. But at the end of the book of Job, Job repented. Huh. Huh. He started out as the most godly man on the planet. At the end, he repents. Of what sin does Job repent? I did a search on the noun pride and the adjective proud through the 66 books of the Bible. 10% of all the times those words are used in the Bible are found in the book of Job. It was a sin of pride which at the end of the book brought Job to repentance. Here's the last verse of God's last speech and his last word to Job right before Job repents. Job 41, 34. I'm sorry, it's a reference to God. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all. The sons of pride. And son of is a Hebrew idiom that refers to Those who are characterized by, kind of like Barnabas was son of encouragement. Well, he's referring to those who are characterized by the sin of pride, and then Job repents. It's ironic, isn't it? It wasn't Job's grief or his suffering or his depression or the rejection by his friends. It wasn't even Satan's direct attacks on Job. It was dealing with the sin of pride at the end that brought Job to repentance, and to humility, and I will promise you, if pride can get to Job, then it can get to you and me. Will you you agree with me on that? If pride can get, yeah, exactly, we're there. So I've mentioned the history books. I've mentioned a couple of wisdom books. They speak the same about pride, and just just a little apologetic information here uh, of defense of the faith. Uh, Pride in the ancient world was a virtue. It was not a vice. It was regarded very highly, just the way it is in our culture today. So, to find this uniform attitude about pride in the Bible across cultures and across centuries is really pretty astonishing. It gives evidence of the inspiration of the Bible, one spirit writer across all of these books. Very unusual. So, what about the prophets? The wisdom books, the, uh, the, the history books. The prophets warned the kings and warned the kingdoms about displacing God in their pride. There are countless examples, but there's one that might surprise you. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans, it's quoted in Galatians, it's quoted in Hebrews. And you know the verse yourself. You can quote it with me. The just shall live by faith. Okay. The just shall live by his faith. But that's, that verse that is a verse in the context of understanding more deeply what our salvation is about, about receiving faith to be saved and about walking in faith after we're saved, that verse, the just shall live by faith, is actually the first half. That's not the whole verse. I'm going to read the whole verse to you. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, says this. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the just shall live by faith. Do you see the contrast there? The clear contrast. And notice the description. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. When you come to the New Testament, very first event in the New Testament is the incarnation of the Son, God the Son, with which all Gospels begin in one form or another. Paul described it in the terms that was our Scripture reading this morning. Here, the doctrinal description Of the incarnation is found in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself he took on human flesh he became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross wherefore God is highly exalted him at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father pride humility and exaltation now for me this Survey funnels down to one passage, a parable that I want us to, and I'd like for you to turn there uh, to this parable for just a few moments. And it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. I'm, we don't like to do this, but I'm going to jump into the middle of a context. Everything funnels down to this in this text. Pride is clearly on display for all to see. And it's on display so that you can better understand what salvation means. In Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9, here's the key. He's going to tell us what this is about. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, do you see the attitude there? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And if you didn't know what was coming and you lived in the first century, you would assume that the guy that wore the white hat was the Pharisee and the guy that wore the black hat was the tax collector. He was the bad guy. But Jesus turns everything on its head. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, literally facing himself. The mirror for the Pharisee is not the mirror of the word. It's the mirror of his own desires and his own heart. This is what he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. What's the common word there? I. Reminds you of of, uh, of Isaiah's indictment of the uh, uh, king of Babel. I will, I will, I will, I will ascend to the most high. I. There are echoes of that here. But notice the contrast. The tax collector standing some distance away. So notice they're both Standing apart from God's people. The Pharisee, because he thinks he's too good to be with them. The tax collector, because he knows he's not good enough to be with them. The Pharisee, um, the tax collector, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I want you to notice two things here. First of all, there's a definite article. The sinner, not a sinner. There are other people on the planet that are sinners. But when it comes to my knowledge of sin, it's me. I am the sinner. And I want you to notice the second thing. Some of you have a a reference in your Bible, a cross-reference to the word merciful. It gives you a different rendition. The other translation is the word propitious, God be propitious, and what the picture is, I believe, is the doctrine of propitiation means that a sacrifice was placed upon the altar, so he was doing it the right way. He wasn't just saying, oh, God, please. According to God's revelation, he was asking that God would take the blood of the sacrifice and apply it to atone for his sins, even though he knew he didn't deserve it. He did not deserve that exchange. But he is asking in faith for God to do that because he knows he's he can't earn it on his own. God be propitious to me, the sinner. And notice, notice Jesus' verdict. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. As I mentioned earlier, God does not divide people into good and bad. That's Santa Claus who does that. God doesn't even divide people in one sense into sinful and not sinful because even after after salvation, I'm still sinful. In terms of salvation, God divides people into the proud and the humble. 1 Peter 5, and also James 4, quote this verse from the Old Testament. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Do you see the same ideas? Pride, humility, exaltation. Okay, I can't think of uh, a single time in our last 37 year history that I've preached on one sin. (laughs) I don't think I've ever done that before, this, this before. The reason why is because I've Mm, have discovered that it is present within me. As I said before, and I hope you're catching this, pride can destroy kingdoms. It can destroy families, friendships, churches, relationships. It can keep you from salvation. It has tendrils that are embedded in many other sins and and, and are put on display through those other sins. So the need to deal with this sin is clear to me. And if the need to deal with this sin is not so clear to you, then I want to ask you some diagnostic questions. And here they are. Here's the first question to you. Do you have secret hopes that you will be shown publicly to be more intelligent, more educated, more spiritual, more talented, more athletic than the other person? In other words, that you'll be shown to be more. Do you nudge conversations in a direction where your strengths will be put on display? Think about that one. Do you find it harder to be patient with other people and easier to judge them, which means in your mind they are less than you are, at least in the ways that are important to you? Do you find it easy to complain about them and blame them for their shortcomings? Do you find yourself more legalistic in your judgments and less inclined to treat other people with grace? Or, as the Pharisee did, I mean, yeah, treat others with contempt. Do you fantasize conversations (laughs) where you really zing the other person in a way that makes others admire you? Do you find yourself hoping that the other person will mess up in some way so that you will be shown to be who you are? Do you struggle to submit to what Scripture says, especially about denying yourself? Could add 30 more diagnostic questions because I think we're all there. Pride, and what is its opposite? Let's see if you're still with me? Pride versus Humility, yeah. They are two sides of the same coin. How many sides does a coin have? Three. <laughs> there are the two sides, and then there's the edge. Okay. So let's just pretend that the edge is your decision to pursue pride or to pursue humility. Which direction will you go? course it comes down to your heart attitude before God and I want to talk with you about how exactly to address this sin I want to give you I want to close with three action steps and they're just things to start with they're they're just things that seem to me are self-evident first of all how do you deal with this sin first of all admit and confess this is my problem pride will lie to me Pride will tell me, uh, you don't have a problem with pride. You're just being honest about yourself. You are better than other people. <laughs> yeah. Pride will do that to you because you're not better. I'm certainly not. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Romans 12, 3. So first of all, admit and confess to the problem. Secondly, ask God to expose you to yourself, and when He does, don't be horrified by what you see, but be thankful for saving grace. Truth is your friend. It. When I see myself, I, it's, this is what I need. I need to see myself as I am. David prayed, "Search me, O God, and know my heart." Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and then lead me in the everlasting way. You know where that is found? That's the, at the end of Psalm 139. You know what Psalm 139 is about? It's about the attributes of God. So David connects self-exposure with an understanding of who God is. Which is the third point. Dwell on the attributes and actions of God that we see in Scripture. Here's how this helps us. When you're glorifying God, you're not glorifying yourself. When your mind dwells on seeing God as He is, then you also see yourself as you are. And here's what you see. You see that you are His precious child and you realize that it's only God's opinion of you that matters, right? Rejoice in the humility of salvation and not in the pride of self-exaltation. When I focus on the attributes, the character, and the actions of God, as Tim Keller put it, well, I'm not thinking more of myself I'm not thinking less of myself. I am thinking of myself less. I want us to close. Having endured to the end, I want us to close by singing as unto the Lord two verses of a song that was written over 300 years ago. And I'm going to give you the lyrics. But I want you to be thinking about this and thinking about your own heart and relation to pride and humility. And if any of you are wondering about your own relationship with God and would like to talk about what it means to be saved by God's grace, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But I want you to all to reflect with me on the words of this song Written by Isaac Watts in 1707. I think it sets the tone just right. I'm going to ask you all to stand. I know you can sing it beautifully a cappella. I expect to hear beautiful parts. I want to to hear the harmony of this. But uh, first of all, I'm going to read the lyrics of the first verse. We're going to sing that. And then I'm going to read the lyrics of the fourth verse and then we will sing that and we'll be dismissed with our benediction. Here are, the, here are the, the first words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Okay. When I survey, survey the one. On which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that So divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Our benediction is from the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. God bless you.